thank Linda Brown for reading and recording and doing all those things that she faithfully does from home. I've known Linda for a long time, really one of the sweetest people you'll ever want to know. And I got to know her um, many years ago very well as we were building a counseling team together, and she was very much a, a part of the training and the certification of things for biblical counselors in the church, and she's been so effective in ministry alongside of her husband, Pat, and just really dear people and good friends with many of you in this room, I know, and stuff. And so, Pat and Linda, even though you're not able to be in the room with us, we appreciate you and we love you and we thank you very much for contributing to the service this morning, but also to the kingdom of the Lord over all these years. You've been so faithful in that, so we appreciate you. I want to just say, um, before we get started, first off, I'm loving the fact that my pulpit is back. Woo, this is amazing. You know, it's like some of you guys, you know, you go to the job site and everything, you got this new tool or something, or it's just the one that fits and everything. This is my tool. This is it right here. This is what I get to use to go to work. And so I want to thank um, who's not here so we can't even embarrass him, but I'm not saying it next week. You know, we got to move on. But uh, I want to thank Ben Tompkins for all the work. This is a custom-made pulpit, and uh, it went away for some time because it needed a height adjustment and stuff. And so we've accomplished that, but, you know, it took a while to get there, and now we have it, and it's great. It's still a little bit oily and greasy, so if you see me doing this a lot while I'm preaching, you'll know it's because I'm still not used to the feeling of it. But it's a beautiful work of art and a labor of love, and I just want to thank Ben uh, for for the time and the attention that went into that. Uh, as Pastor Tom said, the uh, we had a great time at the um, at the potluck um, gathering on Friday night, and it's always a great time. It's funny because we're people, right? We're human beings, so we start off a little shy, a little quiet. Then the games get going, and everyone kind of comes out of their shell and everything. And so I feel like I had a victory on Friday night because I survived because we were in the pie um, musical chair sort of musical pie event. And so if the music stops while you're holding a pie, you have to smash it in somebody's face right across from you. And the fact that Jake Marcoux did not kill me instead, he embraced it. Jake is, you know, he towers over me. He's just this big, huge dude. And um, he did not break me. Instead, he was like, go right ahead. So I got to smash it right in his face, and it was great. Just a lot of fun. My, I think it was rigged because every time it, the pie got in my hand, the music stopped, so I had to smash my daughter's face. Jake's is great. Awesome. Anyway, it's a great time uh, as we have these from time to time. And it's not a forced participation thing. If you're like, ah, oh, it's not really my thing. I don't really like, you know, get doing all that. It was a lot of people that didn't do that. And then there's other ways that everyone gets to participate in other things. It's just an amazing time. And the Farnham's did an incredible job with that. So really appreciate the whole small group effort that they that they put forward. Um, yeah, I think that's, oh, wait a second. I'm not done with my little family debriefing and warm-up with you guys. Yesterday, we had an amazing time uh, at the wedding of Rodney and Becky Tyrion. And uh, I'm a little disappointed they blocked my shot, though, you know. It's like I don't wear that suit very often. and Fine, it's all about you guys, I guess. Um. But really, uh, an incredible journey and just a really fun thing to do. 
uh, with these two and stuff. Many of you know Becky. Some of you are getting to know Rodney. Rodney loves big crowds. He loves being embarrassed and center of attention. No, he does not like any of that sort of stuff and has really stepped up to the occasion. And, and it's been a real joy and a, and a privilege to get to know him and to celebrate with them. And, and again, I know the Farnham's get a little bit of spotlight here, but I appreciate the Farnham's with their assistance with pre-marriage counseling for them too, and, and being friends to them. I want to thank you guys for the way the body comes together and does those things and stuff. So it's just greatly appreciated. And uh, it's nice to see um, all of those things come together. Let's pray if you if you join me before we get started in our text this morning. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for seeing the life of the body come together and in all the ways in which you're encouraging one another as we come together under this roof and walk through this life and go through this journey, Lord, to see all the acts of service and the kindness and the support for one another. It's really incredible. And I know, Lord, that we put those things on display and that there's plenty of other um, things that, that aren't maybe so bright and shiny, that some people do go through hurts and isolations and difficulties and things. So, Lord, I pray that as we study this ap- aspect of church unity and we grow together in an understanding of the scriptures, that those things would be fewer and far between, that the reputation of your people would continue to grow as those who look after one another, those who provide for those that are in need, as as it would be those that support one another and love each other as they reflect you. So help us, Lord, to be diligent in the scripture this morning. Bless our attention, Lord. There's so many things vying for our attention in our lives and in our world today. So we dedicate this time to you to come before your scriptures and to give you our minds and to allow you to work in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple of guys were on the construction site and uh, they were taking their lunch break and these two guys go and sit off to the side and they open their lunch pails and the one guy's kind of excited he got what he wanted for lunch and he's ready to go, you know, because ultimately we're all still just little kids looking forward to what we get for lunch, right? Well, the other guy opens his lunch pail and he's like, oh man, bologna again? I'm sick of this stuff. And the guy, kind of not knowing his situation, goes, why don't you just ask your wife to make you something different? Why would you complain? He goes, I don't have a wife. I made this myself. (laughs) Most of the baloney in our lives is often (laughs) self-imposed. What I hope you find from our text this morning is that in Christ we have the power and we have the resources to keep from making our own baloney. And so what we're going to see this morning as we get into this intensely practical section of scripture is that Paul is giving us some very real answers to our very real dilemmas. And he's been building this on a comprehensive truth. I, I love this passage of scripture. I really was looking forward to, to being in Ephesians just so I could get to chapters 4, 5, and 6. But going through chapters 1 through 3, we were able to see that what Paul is building on is a foundation of comprehensive truth. That we don't get to the places of making real changes in our lives until we've understood that Jesus has remade us. That all things are new. The old is gone. By the power of Christ, we do not have to be enslaved to our old selves. And so Paul's been laying out this treasure, this this truth even of who we are and what we have in Christ. So now coming into these extremely practical chapters of 4, 5, and 6, 
He's going to be calling us to some very difficult changes. But he's not, he's not uh, expecting us to do it just by our own strength, mustering the energy, coming up with our own smarts. No, he, he knows that we will only do this in the power of Christ. And our text is going to have a series of positive and, and negative couplings, what we've called, what so many have called the put off and put on principles of the scriptures. And so last week we started with this metaphor of when I think of put off and put on, I'm thinking about getting the clothes out of your closet. And so we have an old set of clothes that we were born in and that we've attained over the years of just walking in our own lives. But then when we're new in Christ, Jesus says, I've got a completely different wardrobe for you. Now, because we live this side of eternity, we still have that sin that dwells in us that wants us to kind of by habit or sometimes by practicality or temptation to go to the old closet and start putting those clothes on because they're familiar. We've tricked ourselves into thinking somehow they're more comfortable. The new stuff is itchy. The new stuff fits different. That kind of thing. That's that new life in Christ that doesn't come naturally to us. It comes supernaturally to us. And so Paul is going to say, this is what the old closet wardrobe looks like. Now this is what the new closet wardrobe looks like. And so he starts this text with a therefore. So he's saying, because we've established you have an old closet and a new closet, therefore, in verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry. This goes back to verse 17 from last week where he establishes this old and new closet by saying, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do or as the unbeliever does as many of us once were unbelievers in the futility or the frustration or the purposelessness or the results less living of our old lives the futility of our minds. And he goes on to explain in that passage that we were walking in a darkened understanding. We were alienated from the salvation that God offers and we had become callous to feeling anything. But the life that we now live, the life that we can actually live, and this is the part that you and I need to wrap our faith around, is that in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to live this life that Paul is going to be calling us to over these next couple of, actually for the rest of our study in this book. Remember, we said last week that our old clothes serve no purpose in the new life, though we are tempted to think they do. Every once in a while, I feel the need to go back and get that old garment because it it accomplished things in my life. But we forget that what it ended up resulting in is in the futility of our minds, the the resultslessness of my life. So he's going to lay out for us that we live by a different code of conduct. And he's going to give us four areas this week. And then Lord willing, next week, we'll get into some other areas as well. So if we don't cover your thing this week, trust me, your conviction's coming. Just kidding. Maybe not. I don't know. He's going to lay out that we're going to deal with lying, anger, stealing, how we use our tongues, our language, our speech. So... Shouldn't be uncomfortable at all this morning, huh? So we get into our text in verse 25. We said, therefore, because we no longer walk as the unbeliever does, we've put away falsehood and we're going to let each one of us speak the truth with his neighbor. 
Now, already we're getting into uncomfortable territory. We are going to say, if I'm going to exchange the clothes of the old wardrobe, which in this instance is the lying tongue, I'm going to put on something new, which is truth. So I'm exchanging lying for truth, which is very difficult to do as enculturated as lying is in our society and in oftentimes our own habit. Actually, I want to illustrate this by talking about two folks in a town. These, this one guy was a baker and another one was a farmer. The baker relied on the farmer's um, supply of butter to bake his goods. And his recipes started coming out weird. And so he started thinking, maybe I'm not getting all the butter that I'm supposed to be getting from this guy because something's off. And he started measuring it. And sure enough, a pound of butter was not really a pound of butter. It was coming in short. So he hauls the guy into like a small claims court situation and stuff. Well, the judge ends up throwing out the case because the farmer says, hey, I don't have like a measurement for the pound. I have these scales. And what I did as a counterweight is I took the bread that I get from the baker and said, well, that's supposed to be a pound. And that's how it didn't level. You see, they were lying to each other. It's a very enculturated problem we have. We, we lie because of survival or because of, of habits. We are in a political season, which I don't think is ever a season that goes away these days. And, and, and we keep saying, boy, it would just be refreshing if our politicians would speak honestly with us, right? And some do. Some do walk in honesty and integrity. I know that. I'm not going to be, gonna be one of these naysayers. Oh, they're all a bunch of whatevers. You know, it's the lazy approach to it. But we know that for many, the advantage they have in the political circles is not being honest. And then all the the data so often gets manipulated or we're going to say these things but not the others so we create a false impression of the reality. And so it becomes exhausting for us and, and the approval ratings and the trust and everything goes down into the basement. And this is happening in Ephesus, too, as Paul is writing to the people. They are living in a culture where lying itself and even as it would result in stealing and everything was not necessarily frowned on. It was almost like your fault for getting suckered. And if I can manipulate this well enough, if I can if I can take advantage of you, then that's your fault, not mine. This is something that I just heard that (laughs) hasn't changed. I heard (laughs) so true. And, and so Paul is writing to a to what we would consider to be a contemporary audience going through the same exact problems that we run into today. And unfortunately, we know even from Paul's words in Colossians that these things were creeping into the church. And he says, your old culture, your old clothes from that old wardrobe are coming into the life of the church and you're using lying as a technique to get ahead. And this ought not be the case. Already in just the last uh, the last section that we were studying in verse 14, he had said that he was compelling us to no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So the warning there is for us not to rely on this fleshly technique as though somehow it's the only way we're going to get what we're supposed to have. You see, a lie is a blatant disregard for the sovereignty of God. As God's children and as God's church, we believe that God is in control, that he has the power and the authority to direct 
all of us and to get us safely through life or at least safely in his in his hand in his grip through life without having to manipulate the system or scheming or anything to get ahead so when you and i as god's children engage in a lie what we're saying is i don't think he's got it i don't think he's strong enough to to handle the needs of my life i need to take matters into my own hands Lying, though, is one of the fastest slopes to destruction. As we know, we've taught our children, hey, you lie once. Now you got to tell another lie to cover up that one and then another one to cover up that one. And it just keeps building. And most will say before they were caught or before they had to admit what was going on, they said I was having a hard time keeping up with the stories that I was telling. It had been weaved so deep that I didn't even know what was the truth anymore. Revelation 21 verse 8 in literally the verse where we get the phrases like hellfire and brimstone in the very uncomfortable and sort of straightforward right between the eyes kind of truth says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable as for murderers, the sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's a path to destruction. And yet there's something in us. It's like when somebody just kind of startles you or something, your first reaction that comes from the nature of who you are is to say, I wasn't doing anything. Even if you weren't, you just have to say, like, I wasn't doing anything. It's just this, like, this, this, uh, this mechanism that comes from within us. And you might say, well, I don't really know that I outright lie to people. I don't necessarily anymore say something expecting it to be believed that is absolutely false. But there's those that do. But there's also those of us that exaggerate. You know, if we embellish over time a particular story or something along those lines, or we tout our own accomplishments or achievements beyond what they are, there's all kinds of ways in which we can exaggerate or we, we cheat, we try to cut corners. Or perhaps we give false promises. We say, I'll be there or I'll do this thing. And in the back of your mind, you're like, I don't know how I can do this. Even if your intention is there, you know what just came out of your mouth is, I'm not sure I can back that up. Sometimes we betray one another's confidence. We said a few weeks back that gossiping kind of reveals in the heart that I'm, I'm important because I know something that you don't. And that temptation to betray one's confidence, even though they said that to you privately, you want to share it with others. That is in itself a form of a lie. Perhaps you flatter people. You want to make them believe what you have said about them, but from your heart of hearts, it's not how you see them or it's not what you think of them. Or maybe you make excuses for not coming through or doing the thing that you know you should do. These are all forms of lying that Paul is saying for us as believers. Those are all clothes from the old closet. And while you're tempted to reach for them and put them on, trust me, they will only lead you to destruction. So if you say, well, what's the opposite of those things? What would be truth? Well, there's a lot of different examples of truth, but it could start with being accurate rather than having to exaggerate or cut corners or not be fully up front. To embrace vulnerability or promise keeping and keeping confidences. These are the exact opposites. This is when you're doing those things, you've gone to the other closet and you've started putting on new clothes, the ones that have been provided for you. 
But you can see where all of a sudden that tension comes like, yeah, but I don't know how to do that. Or I don't know if I can trust the recipient. Or what if I don't get full, I, I don't, I don't move ahead in my life. What if I put those things on and they come back to haunt me? The reality is that truth does feel naked and cold initially. It feels like when you speak the truth, you're stepping out and you didn't put anything on from either wardrobe. But eventually, it provides comfort and safety. You see, truth is in stark contrast to darkness. And I'm looking forward to a message in a couple weeks from Jeremy Jones where we'll be talking about the distinction between light and darkness and how the gospel shines a light in all of the dark corners of our lives. Because this is who Jesus is. He said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The very nature of Christ is walking in truth and has no partnership with a lie. So we're already saying, okay, Paul, you've told us I have to take off my old garments of lying and put on a new garment of truth. He says, we're not done there. There's still other things, other items in the closet. I want you to get rid of your rage in exchange for the righteousness of God. He tells us in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Do you catch that command? He says, be angry. Seems like a strange permission, huh? Seems like a strange thing that I could look you in the face and say to the church, it's okay for you to be angry. But that's exactly what the text is saying. This isn't a literary device or anything like that. He's just saying, no, you can be angry. In fact, there are times where it's commanded. You can be angry against injustices. All forms of evil and an ungodliness. In fact, if it doesn't provoke something in you when things are going wrong or someone's being taken advantage of or when blatant ungodliness is right before you, then probably we should check your pulse in Christ. Those things should anger us. We always go back to the example of Jesus himself walked in when he saw that the temple of his father was being abused and mistreated for people to make a profit and to take advantage of the people going there to worship. Jesus flipped out and started flipping tables and chasing them out with a cord and running them out there. You see, Jesus wasn't sinning when he did that. He didn't have a moment that he had to come back and be like, oh, really lost my cool there. I should go apologize to those people I was chasing out with a cord and flipping those tables over and all that sort of... Jesus never had to apologize. He didn't have to ask for forgiveness. He never sinned because he righteously demonstrated an anger in defense of the truth of who his father is in all godliness. So we have to establish right out of the get-go that Paul is not saying, get rid of all your anger. But I'm going to add... Those moments of righteous anger and knowing for sure that you are standing only for the offenses against God are very few and far between. Paul is dealing with a a normal um, expression of anger that most of us struggle with. This is uh, this anger that he's talking about is an arousal of an abiding and settled habit in the mind, as Wiest would say. 
or what happened even with Jesus is this long-held conviction that comes to the surface when provoked. That's the kind of anger that is that remains righteous and that remains a great instrument and a tool for getting things done. I've had this long-held conviction. I, I've let it kind of um, be formed by the truth of who God is. I've looked for his face in this situation. And when I saw it violated, it just woke something up in me. And I couldn't shut up anymore about it. However, that can become a problem in our lives. Paul says there's a condition or two. There's a limitation to how we express This anger. He says, you can be angry and you should be angry, but don't sin while you are. I don't know about you. I don't know if I know where that line is sometimes. I don't trust my ability to say I can get hot and mad and then know right when to back it off. So we need a lot of wisdom here. We need instruction. We need our minds to be transformed as we approach this all too common issue. If you say, well, I don't really know where to draw the line. I don't know how to evaluate whether or not my anger is godly or if it's sinful. You can start with a few indicators. You can look at the frequency of your anger. As I said before, we like to kind of pin our anger on the fact, hey, even Jesus got mad. How often? We have an entire life, 33 years of Jesus could have been recorded. We've got most of it in about a three and a half year window recorded for us. How often did we see him flip out and get angry? Once, twice. He spoke sternly to those that were a direct offense. Those that he said were misleading. Uh, those that were trying to uh, find the Lord. But that in terms of really that volume of expression of anger, we see it in the temple. Don't we think that Jesus could have been that mad about everything he saw every day? He knew the truth. He knew what was offensive to God. He himself is God. And so as he was seeing it, I'm sure there was an offense around every corner. Everything he saw and witnessed was, was for the most part against the perfection and the holiness of God. And yet he explodes very, very seldomly. If you find yourself exploding in rage or venting in anger often and then saying that it's godly, you have to check the frequency and say, maybe it's not lining up to the way God would have me go about this. The object of our anger is probably the biggest thing that we need to take some time to evaluate is my is my um, is my focus in my anger about me or is it about something else? The very rare times that it's about something else, something that God cares about, something he's clearly said this ought not to be, is something that we have to say, now, Lord, give me the the kind of the grace to make sure I don't abuse this. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of the things that tick us off are an inconvenience or an offense to us. We also need to look at the expression of that anger. How does it come out? Does it express itself in rage or do I engage in retaliation? Do I have an overall um, uh, uh, aspect of a loss of control? Can I not get it back once it's left my mouth? Then maybe we can probably say, okay, if I wanted to put that in check or get some of that back, then it must not have been godly. So condition number one, the limitation is don't sin. Condition number two is don't let the sun go down on your anger. 
even the good stuff. So he's saying even the stuff that you can say, no, I think this is something God would get ticked off about. And I'm his vessel in this moment. Yes, but there's still a time limit. He puts restraints on the emotions. Now, in our day and age, we don't believe that emotions can be controlled. We feel like emotions are the thing to just, you ride the wave, it kind of takes us where it wants to go, and so we, you know, we use expressions like the heart wants what the heart wants, or you're just feeling the feelings and all this kind of stuff. Paul would be very cruel to command us not to feel something if it couldn't be controlled. And he's saying, don't let the sun go down on your anger. It proves that God can have control of the things that we feel just well up inside and express itself in any kind of way. I also think about this. When he's putting a time limit on this and he's saying this needs to come to some form of conclusion or teamwork or something by the end of the day, he's, he's forcing us to think through the solutions. If you are surrendering in your heart to do things God's way and you're like, I'm, oh, I'm chewing nails right now. I'm going to break something, but it's almost sundown. What am I going to do? If you really want to honor God in that, that becomes a very helpful restraint because it forces the wheels to spin and say, somehow he's commanded me to do this, wants me to do this. I don't feel like surrendering to this, but I need to. And the clock is ticking. So God, what do you have for me? What am I supposed to do with this? And don't necessarily mistake that that means you've solved the whole problem or that everyone's just kissy kissy and lovey dovey by the time the sun goes down. But you've extended some some movement in that direction. You've said, look, this is still something that we have to deal with. This is still something we have to solve. But for tonight, you need to know something. I'm not against you for tonight. You need to know that the Lord will get us through this. Do you see how that kind of solution, even if it doesn't fix everything, it starts moving people in that direction of, I can actually go to bed tonight, put my head down on my pillow and feel like I've given this over to the Lord. It's a very helpful thing for the Lord to put those kind of constraints on us. And, and Paul might even be taking this right from Mosaic law. It was, in, it was uh, commanded for, for an employer as you had people working in the fields or different things like that, especially those that needed their daily pay each day because there wasn't a lot to live off. He said, settle your accounts, settle your debts before the sun goes down. Make sure you've paid them so they can go and say, okay, now I can provide for the needs of my family. When you and I do that with our anger, we're sending the other person off in a direction of now I can do something with this. If you've been married before, you know that you can have closeness and have distance all at the same time. You can go to bed and be shoulder to shoulder and feel like you're a million miles away because of the fight you just had or the things that are building. They're causing a wedge between you. And just having that limit on our anger and just knowing that that restraint is there and stepping into it and surrendering that will start to encourage and start to build a unity that you would never imagine possible. Even if you haven't figured out how we're going to get through this or what the solution is. It's way too tempting though. Sometimes we just want to simmer and we want to think about it and we just want to kind of feel justified for as absolutely long as we can. And Bachner says it this way, and I, I find it kind of creepy the way that this sounds, which is kind of fitting for October again, but this is how he explains that desire for anger. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. 
to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you're given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that when you're wolfing, what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Paul also tells us in Romans 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written. Vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Well, I don't feel like feeding him. I'm still simmering. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Or it's another expression for you will blow their mind. They'll say, what's happening here? You have every right to be angry with me. You have every right to treat me as your enemy. Why are you serving me right now? I can't wrap my head around it. It's confusing. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm camping out on anger a little bit more today because of the season that we're in, because of the season that we've been in for the last two or three years. Because I think this is where the movement of the Spirit has his next great battleground to do in the life of believers. What do we do with all the feelings that we feel inside? What do we do with the rage that seems right on the surface and just ready to explode? What do we do? It feels so pent up or maybe I'm exhausted from expressing it over and over and over again. All to no result. How should we handle our anger? Well, start by acknowledging the source of your anger. If you got notes this morning, I've included this little five step um, uh, assistance for you in this area. But you want to start with acknowledging where is this anger coming from? Is it a righteous anger that I am truly mad about the things that God is mad about? Again, keep in mind my warning that most of the time it is not. Most of the time it's something I am offended by. And then I kind of blame God for taking up my cause so I can express my anger. But sometimes it is. Maybe I need to acknowledge that these are coming from a place of demand in my life, that even the things that would be good for me that God says will be available to you at some point, I don't want to wait for them anymore. And I'm sick of you not providing me what I feel like I need to get through life. So I'm going to go and fight. Or as James says, I'm going to quarrel and I'm going to devour and I'm going to murder the other person, both figuratively and where it ends up sometimes, because I didn't get out of it what my flesh desired or demanded. So I need to think about where is this coming from? I need to take this to the Lord. Why would I take it to him if it's my thing I'm dealing with? Because ultimately it's his offense. Everything that happens to us is not really about us. It's about offending the holiness of God. This is more about how he's offended than it is me. It's his justice that he will defend and stand for, not just mine, but it's his power That will save the day. It's his power that will work through me. That will deal with this situation. That's causing me such anger. I need to learn how to respond like Jesus. Yes. I I mimic him and I imitate him. And I stand for God's justice. But how did he do it? He did it patiently. He did it mercifully. 
And he was also redemptive that he worked towards building the solution rather than continuing to drive the wedge and say, you just have to deal with my wrath. He came with a solution to the problem. And then if you want to get really practical, you start thinking about your circumstances. Um, you know, just to be silly about, was I hungry? What was going on? Was I hangry? Did I not have the Snickers? Why did I just blow up? Am I feeling pressure from all the deadlines or the ways that other people have failed to do their job or anything along those lines? Are those circumstances owning me as opposed to the spirit of God within me? What were the behaviors that I expressed? How, what do I have to go back and, and change? Or what were the behaviors being done towards me that I have to think about and prepare myself for next time? What are the expectations that I put on the situation? Were they realistic? Was the timing of it right? What's the biblical help? What is the, what is the help that God brings me in those moments? And then certainly, as I'm praying about it, what am I praying for? I'm praying for forgiveness for everything that I've done to blow this. I'm praying for the ability to go and forgive others that tripped my trigger or actually did an offense to me. Lord, get me ready to forgive them because right now I don't feel like it. I need to pray for humility. God, make this about your justice and not mine. Gentleness. I don't necessarily have to go and pound the, pound the pavement or beat them in the face or anything like that just because they've wronged me. How can I go and say, I wonder what's going on in their life that would cause them to do this? And then certainly praying for solutions. You see how all of that is like going to a closet and saying, I don't really know about this wardrobe business. I don't know how to wear this stuff well. Seems like effort. Seems like it takes time. Seems like it takes a lot of eating crow. That's why Paul is saying, I'm going to spend three chapters talking about how different you are and how much the strength of Christ is living within you. That resurrection power, the power that can raise a body from the dead. And triumph over death. That power is living within you. To do these kinds of seemingly impossible things. So we're still trading off one thing for the next. And so he says, I want you to trade in stealing for sharing. And we'll move a little quicker through these. Ephesians 4.28. We get back to our text. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor. Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Acknowledging that the built-in disposition of the clothes in the old closet is to want to take advantage of other people so that our lives feel like they go a little smoother. So that I can get ahead and let it be on the back of somebody else. Knowing that's the sin that I was born in and wanting to put that off and get over that. What do I do instead? Yeah, I saw something this week that was interesting. They talked about how a lot of the big 